Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Srila Roy is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Heads Development Studies at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa. She's the author of the book Remembering Revolution, Gender, Violence and Subjectivity in India's Naxalbari Movement and the editor of New South Asian Feminisms, both of which came out in 2012. She's also the co-editor of New Subaltern Politics, Reconceptualizing Hegemony and Resistance in Contemporary India, which came out in 2015. Srila is currently writing a book on feminist and queer politics in India and co-editing a volume of essays on Me Too in India and South Africa. Funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, she leads a five-year collaborative project between India and Southern Africa called Governing Intimacies. Srila is also the editor of a number of academic journals and a regular contributor to a variety of media outlets on issues of gender and sexuality in the global south, with her work featuring on Al Jazeera, Open Democracy, The Wire and Dissent. Srila's piece in Living While Feminist is called Challenging Sexual Harassment in the University, Disarming Feminism, and it examines the way that we tell stories about sexual harassment in university settings, what gets talked about, who gets silenced, and how feminism can be co-opted. In that piece, Srila writes, What would it mean to tell a different story of tackling sexual harassment on campus, a story of institutional resources and commitment? of independent officers to deal with complaints alone, to counsel and care, and of feminist leadership, where it would be obvious that intervention must mean transformation. This could be a story of feminist success, but feminist success is invariably its failure. In the garnering of actual institutional capacity and power lies the undoing of feminist resistance and its promise of an alternative future. So today I'll be talking to Srila about that piece, Feminism in Institutions, and many other topics. Welcome, Srila. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for such a generous introduction and, you know, for taking the initiative and doing this beyond curating this fabulous volume of essays. (laughs) Thank you. So your piece was originally published in the Mail and Guardian, which was where I saw it, and then published again in Living While Feminist. Can you tell me a bit about what prompted you to write this piece in its original form? Yeah, so the piece was basically uh, birthed through some reflections in doing actual sexual harassment redressal work uh, where I work at Wits University. Um, I was uh, for some time part of our um, sexual harassment um, advisory committee and WITS has some very robust um, institutional structures to to deal with sexual harassment which uh, emerged not so long ago on the back of various uh, cases of sexual harassment on campus uh, the you know the major one was the gender equity office which is the geo and which still exists to this day uh, and uh, yeah, so just being part of those processes made me just really think about um, what is it that institutions get right, and what in, what is it that institutions get wrong, or what? And and you know, when I say institutions, I mean all of us, right? I mean as academics who are part of these institutions. I mean higher levels of management. 
uh, and and even you know the community of students because part of you know our whole problem also with GBV which we're constantly talking about is about taking collective responsibility I think right so you know even though I think the the piece itself maybe um, talks about you know a kind of institutional backlash I think it's important to acknowledge that everyone plays a role in that and anyway so to go back to the piece it was really thinking about what happens when you also you you actually get everything right you know you have the process in place you have feminist leadership you have feminist knowledge that that motivates uh, the kind of decision making which which is not about uh, you know taking a very punitive a disciplinary mechanism it's about thinking a lot more capaciously around sexual harassment and a culture of sexism a culture of Uh, male power and entitlement so even I mean I suppose my point is even when you get all of that right you know why is it and this is obviously a much broader question right I mean it's a, it's it's actually I think the question for South Africa in this current uh, historic con, uh, conjuncture it's the question of how is it that South Africa with this brilliant constitution with uh, so much of you know, gender equality, sexual equality, much more so than most other places, not just on the continent, but elsewhere. How is it that we still have to keep, you know, uh, dealing with what has been basically called a pandemic in its own right, which is GBV, you know? So I think so. I think that's, that's the bigger question of which, obviously, the university uh, or sexual harassment in the university is simply one microcosm, but it's a, it's a much bigger problem, which I think I've been thinking about a lot more uh, recently because obviously it's on the news all the time, but mu- much more so than on the news. I think it's very much in our lives all the time. And it is this question of, you know, how, how do we, what do we do about this? How and, 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 and how the kind of energy that it requires to, to fight a culture of uh, sexual harassment or GPV and what does that mean? I think one of the things you describe in your piece is the way that these institutional structures can themselves almost be stumbling blocks because they give the illusion of action rather than anything actually transformative happening. And you describe in your piece sexual harassment work or perhaps anti-sexual harassment or anti-GBV work as similar to chipping away at walls. What did you mean by this? Um, I think uh, the idea of uh, walls was very much from the work of Sarah Ahmed, who's um, a feminist. I mean, she's now an independent scholar, but at the time she was uh, an academic at Goldsmiths College in London. And she wrote a lot about, or she used a lot of this this metaphor around walls and around, um, you know, sexual harassment or doing that work is is just coming uh, coming up in front of one wall and another wall. And it's almost like, uh you know the you you kind of make it through one hurdle and then the institution sets up another one so she she keeps talking about how you know more and more walls come up um and 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 the costs of doing that work really keeps exponentially increasing for uh, obviously just the victim but also for you know various other people who are trying to change a culture of sexual harassment and i just thought that was a really um incredibly generative um, metaphor of the wall because I think that's what it is in an institution right the goalposts keep uh, keep shifting so you know you get over uh, you get over one area of 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 challenge and then there's something else and partly institutions do that because as I say in the piece they also deal with some of these issues as 
as a PR exercise, right? I mean, however well-intentioned they or the individuals who inhabit those institutions might be, ultimately, they're doing a kind of risk assessment, right? They're trying to think about, well, what is it that would make, you know, I mean, we want to resolve this problem, but we don't want it to make us look uh, look bad, as it were. I mean, that's one part of the story. But the, uh, the other part of the story is that, you know, the costs can be extremely high if we actually take uh, sexual harassment or GBV seriously, right? Like if we start really thinking about this and saying, okay, we're actually going to go down right to the very, you know, minute, intimate normalization of uh, male power, male entitlement, of, of patriarchy, then I mean, that's just, do you know what I mean? I mean, who's going to take that on? Because that would mean every sexist comment you've ever encountered in a corridor. It would mean so many things that we normalize every day. It would mean reckoning with so much that even as women, we we just shrug and, and carry on because there's no other way to live, right? Until you absolutely actually, you know, harden your soul against it. So for an institution to really do this work seriously, I mean, it would mean a radical restructuring, which no institution will do. So they will do piecemeal things. And my point about chipping away at the wall is is therefore that our struggles are also in, in that vein. They're also oriented towards, you know, this slow incremental work, because we also know that we, we're not going to have revolution, right? We're not going to have a radical restructuring. So what we have to do is chip away, and we do that on an everyday basis, but more and more walls come up every time you do it, which is... Sarah Ahmed's way of saying how the institution, uh, you know, not only obstructs uh, uh, any kind of reordering or reshaping, but it also creates new, uh, it creates new impediments, right? So, yeah, in a way, quite depressingly, it, it, it would feel like a real losing battle. Yeah, I mean, it is depressing. And I think the, the other side of it is that if I'm understanding what you're saying in your piece correctly, that when feminists embark on this project of resistance within institutions, when they do start chipping away at the walls, whether they're at a university or in government or in their workplace, say by setting up special units or by taking complaints seriously, these very acts of feminist resistance are then co-opted and become forces of institutional power rather than spaces for change. And so you give one really powerful example, which is um, how capitalist girl power t-shirts, for example, are often made by women workers who themselves are treated poorly and underpaid. So it does feel a bit despairing, but do you think that there's any room for agency within these structures? And what do you think we should do about this threat of co-option? You know, I mean, even though, of course, I've used that term, though I have tried to say, at least in the piece, that there's a difference between feminism being feminism being undone and being co-opted. But yes, of course, I mean, I say that one of the unique things, again, about our our historical moment is the way in which, you know, feminism has become mainstreamed. And this is often how I start, uh, you know, my classes uh, whether I teach undergraduates or postgraduates today around, you know, a feminist or sexual politics, I start precisely by saying that, you know, this is not a marginal discourse, right? I mean, women's equality, even sexual equality, LGBT rights, none of this is marginal. This is all mainstream. You know, th- there is no more like we're trying to, you know, stand at the edges of power and trying to get in. We're in power, right? So the question is, what do we do with power? What what does, what, I mean, like you said, what does feminist Feminists, what do they do in government? What do they do in NGOs? Uh, what do they do in 
in media. So we need to ask very different questions of our time, right, which are different from a moment in which when we presumed that we are on the outside looking into power. So, so that's, that's, that's one part of the story. But the other part of the story uh, is that I'm quite uncomfortable then with the language of co-option. And that's something I, I've written, thought quite seriously about and written off in this new book uh, that, you, that you mentioned, which is on gender and sexual politics uh, in, in India, where I really try and make a, you know, a kind of academic, I, you could say, argument around uh, the notion of co-option, because co-option sort of assumes that feminism uh, was once outside of power. And then it's and it's now been co-opted into power. But part of the argument I make that is, is that it would be much more useful for us to think of as think of feminism as always having being implicated in networks of power, right? So if we think of ourselves in the global south or in the post-colony, as it were, you know, feminism was always uh, an an imperial project. Uh, the the suffragettes, for instance, you know, wanted uh, the vote for white women over uh, black men. So there was never a time in, in the history of what we could call, you know, women's liberation struggles or, or feminism, where feminism was outside of, as I said, these, these different networks of power. And those configurations have probably changed. So today, what we think of as like, you know, the market um, or uh, the development sector, I mean, I mean, those, like I said, those kind of remits have changed, but there's always been a very close entanglement between feminism and power relations. So I don't think it's very useful to think of, well, how do we then be, you know, how can we have a pure feminism that's not co-opted? And even though I've kind of maybe set up at the start of this conversation, but maybe less so, I would hope in the chapter, uh, you know, this kind of classic divide between revolution or reform, I actually do believe that there's a lot we, uh, as feminists, we that we can do within spaces uh, and in the corridors of power, right? There's a lot we can do within institutions. There's a lot we can do within um, our, our our workplaces or even indeed within the home. So I'm, you know, even though obviously like most of us, I think of uh, feminism as being a very robust collective struggle. I also think it really is about the personal being political. And there's a lot one can do at the at the scale of the individual or the or the personal um, so yeah, to go back to your your initial question about you know I mean what is to be done really I in the face of co-option by institutions or in the face of feminism's undoing I think there's a lot that can be done and is being done right so there are you know young uh, women or LGBTQ identified people who are in a daily basis working in everything from organizations social movements grassroots struggles who are trying to transform the world in however, you know, small and however major ways. Uh, What I do in the classroom, I think is transformative. I don't think of that as being uh, some kind of like ivory tower business. No, I, 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 I teach and I learn about feminist knowledge. And that's a tool to understand how power works. It's an enormous tool. And it's an enormous privilege to have that knowledge and to be able to you know, as the Indian feminist Nivita Menon says, to see the world as a feminist. You know, what does it be to see as a feminist? It's a form of self-empowerment. And I think all of that matters, however small, however big. That That is all going to be part of 
hopefully, you know, the feminist revolution and utopia that we shall all bring. So I'd like to talk about the term that you mentioned in your piece, which it felt like it was speaking directly to me, which was institutional airbrushing, which you attribute to Alison Phipps. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm interested in your perception of recent activism around sexual violence, and in particular, the way that feminists have been made part of government structures like the Interim Steering Committee on Gender-Based Violence and possibly the Future Council on GBV if it comes about. Do you think that we are seeing a sort of institutional airbrushing there or, you know, in the environmental sector, they call it greenwashing when companies do one little thing towards environmental sustainability, even though they're huge polluters. So are we seeing sort of feminist washing or do you think that these are sites for for radical change, for this revolution and utopia that we're trying to build? Um, I think everything in... Everything suggests that we should be much more skeptical. You know, the the the, the past record of at least governments, and uh, not just our own, of working around, you know, of taking seriously GBV, um, suggests that yes, what 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 is being done is again uh, more performance than um, substance than substantial change. Because again, like I said before. Jen, I think the truth is that the costs are too high. You know, if one had to seriously sit and think about, you know, how 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 can we really reckon uh, with a problem of, you know, women being murdered in this country because they're women and because men feel that they are entitled to murder women with impunity. You know, there are really no, there are no easy solutions. I mean, there's, Increasingly, I see on social media, you know, the calls for the death penalty and even leaving aside my own personal uh, views, which is anti the death penalty. I mean, I just feel like it's bizarre to talk about high, uh, you know, raising sentencing when women don't even report. Right. I mean, this is this 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 classic disjuncture, which, you know, it should be so commonsensical, but people don't get their heads around. But governments that's one way in which governments often respond, right? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw that come happening more in South Africa. I mean, it's happened in India considerably, right? Like every time there's been like a massive, spectacular event around GBV, like the rape and murder of Jyoti Singh Pandey, which happened in uh, 2012. You know, governments always respond by increasing. Um, increasing sentencing, for instance, and having actually more stringent laws. But none of that, actually, I mean, all of our research, and this is really important, right, all of our research suggests that none of that does anything to actually um, lessen the problem. In fact, uh, you know, higher sentencing has been proved to to do the opposite. It actually uh, makes women even more hesitant to report, because often, and as we know, the perpetrators are in, are people known to them, right? They, they, they're intimate partners. And, and if that person's going to get a death sentence, then you're not going to, you're not going to report. So going back to what you're saying, this whole, you know, this whole kind of institutional architecture, which keeps expanding, right? Like the committees and uh, the various policies. Again, we need, you know, we need, we have actual grounded evidence to suggest that none of that really does make a difference. And what would make a difference is is a far more complicated question. Yeah, and it need, doesn't fit neatly into budgets or annual performance plans, which I think is where 
government gets stuck. But the, the thing is that I found very interesting over the last year was to think about our ability to take on the things that we already know. Um, so government has done n- numerous pieces of research on these committees, on their ineffectiveness, on the fact that increased sentencing is not necessarily going to solve anything, on the fact that, for example, releasing the names on our sexual offenders register is actually going to be extremely destructive because, as you say, so few people report of those reported cases, so few end in conviction, which says nothing about whether or not there was, in fact, a rape. And so you're going to get this strange list that is incomplete and provides a false sense of security. And government has done this research and knows it has this knowledge that it has produced itself. An excellent report is the diagnostic report from 2016, which showed that we had at that time something like 54 special task teams and committees looking at gender-based violence. Um, so I wonder what, you know, as an academic, as a, someone who's involved in knowledge production, is there a mechanism that we can use to more actively take on the knowledge that we already have and use it effectively? I mean, perhaps this answers your question or it takes the conversation in a more in a different direction. For me, the interesting uh, issue and also quite depressing in the country, why is there only ever so often a sporadic kind of hashtag um, circulation which you know, gathers people's uh, emotional outrage or their affects of that moment when someone uh, dies, basically, and then and then that's that's all you've got. And that it it really strikes me as very unique when I compare it to other countries that have similarly been held up as you know the rape capital of the world. And I mean, I do have my own. Um, speculations of why that's the case and we can talk about that but indeed i do think that the whole only way in which you can hold government responsible is through a a a vigilant civil society especially in this case when there isn't an opposition that's doing it right and that civil society has to come together around really take ownership of this issue of gbv i would be interested to hear your theories because i've worked um in the past decade with various civil society groups, with government, with the donor community. And it it does always amaze me that in South Africa, we sort of give our activism over to a small group of people, either within or or outside of the state. And the majority of people don't seem to be getting involved in fighting against GBV. And I, I mean, there's possible reasons. One is that civil society itself has been systematically um, just unfunded or and has not been funded to work in conjunction with each other so their access to funding is often reliant on them doing things themselves even though other people may be doing the same thing the other is you know I've been thinking a lot about this idea of scarcity and fear and what that does to creativity to activism to having the energy to become an activist and it's very stifling and I wonder if that's not also part of it but I'm sure those same conditions exist elsewhere so I would really be interested to hear what your take on why we don't have a sustained women's movement so one other thing is that the you know our institutional structures to promote ostensibly feminist activism which is the commission for gender equality our parliamentary committees within the state have well I mean in a way you know you've already in some ways you've kind of answered the question and it's also in the book in um, uh, Fileli Nutuli's uh, contribution 
violence and in the feminist movement reflections from the state. Yeah. But it's also a topic in which actually, you know, feminists have long written. I mean, someone like my former colleague at WITS, Shireen Haseem, has written a lot about uh, the women's movement's, uh, movement's relationship to the state. And and I said, it, it you know, the, it's also implicit in your in in your framing, because I think the real difference, the real difference for me with just looking at India and South Africa, not even Latin America, though, again, it would be very, very comparable, is that here, because of the transition and because of the ANC state, there's actually a, a lot of, um, firstly, there hasn't been a women's movement that is autonomous of the state. And there isn't enough of a skepticism or a critique of the state. And I said that's implicit in your conversation because, uh, in your framing, sorry, because you keep going back to the state, you know, and what the state has done and whether the state is capacitating civil society or whether donors are. But in some, in a place like India, the longest history has been of an autonomous women's movement, which is autonomous of the state, which means all political parties, and autonomous of donors, because donors have, you know, their own vested interests. Now, the donor stuff has become much more tricky from the 1990s, when India ostensibly globalized. And that's kind of where, uh, you know, my book, or at least my research for that book began. It was really asking, you know, what does globalization or NGOization, as some people call it, do for the women's movement. But what successive generation generations of Indian feminists, be they women, men, uh, not not binary, and so, trans, and so on and so forth, have done is they have constantly critiqued the state. The the, the they and now when it is a authoritarian right wing state, the state has never been a friend or never been looked at upon as a friend. I mean, even though that's, you know, maybe too too fine a point to put on it, because obviously feminists have also worked within state institutions, they've partnered with, with states. But again, if you look very broadly at Latin America and South Asia, you will see a very healthy skepticism of civil society actors like feminist activists, but a whole range of activists with the state. state. So even when they partner with the state and even when they get certain benefits from the state, like changes in in rape laws, for instance, there's still a very, very healthy skepticism. And I think that is what, and and, I mean, you know, I'm speculating a bit more about this current moment, but certainly people like, you know, Shireen Haseem have written about it, that, I mean, what was the ANC's Women's League, for instance? It was totally, you know, it, it completely shared interests with the, with the ANC, right? It didn't hold it to account. And, you know, the moment of the Zuma rape trial really brings all of this onto the table, as it were. And that's been written about a lot, and one should know that history. But I thought the piece here by Fileli was really, really uh, interesting, precisely because of that, right? Like, you know, they're taking a very microscopic event, which was that that huge uh, protest, planned protest march, and how it became this whole tussle about well, basically this question of, of autonomy, right? Who will bring their banners, which political parties, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as you do not have a movement which is completely independent from all these different vested interests, whether they're international donors or whether they're indigenous uh, political parties, you're not going to have, you're not going to have a strong uh, civil society which can really 
really hold up a mirror, right, to uh, citizens and to the government and, and hold people account. I agree 100% with what you're saying. And I also think, you know, from an economic point of view, that many feminists who have been in civil society, including myself, went to work in the state because you have this idea that you can change things from the inside or at least you can keep the issues on the agenda. And to some, and you know, there are moments where that does happen. But to a large extent, because we have almost a single party state and an opposition that is so inward looking, we have the state managing to get away with a huge amount because it doesn't hold itself accountable. And, and I have seen a perception that partnering with the state as a civil society organization is a good way to have access to these sort of inside spaces. But I have seen less of these creating own spaces and inviting the state to your spaces if you want them to be there or inviting other civil society. And I wonder if this isn't an economic you know, a real constraint of capacity of, it's it's, frustra- it's really frustrating to observe. I watched an interview that I had done in 2014. This is why I left the state because I watched an interview in 2014 that I had done last year when I was a commissioner at the CGE. And in that interview, I had said the exact same thing in 2014 that I was saying in 2020. And I just thought, fuck it, this is a waste of my time. You know, this is really a waste of everyone's time to keep thinking that the state is going to rescue us from the situation with legislation. But I think there isn't a sense of what what acting outside of the state really means, of rejecting it, of just doing things yourself and not waiting for the state to come to your rescue. I don't, I don't think either of us is going to solve this right now in this conversation, but I think it is something that bears thinking about is what is a feminist movement in South Africa outside of the state? Well, I mean, I certainly think that, you know, as I think it's obviously a given that you must partner and for exactly, you know, the kind of reasons you're saying, whether it's about resources or whether it's scale, right? I mean, the state has a kind of reach that, you know, no little NGO will have. So obviously there are those pragmatic issues, but what I think is lacking, particularly in you know, in, in, in popular uh, public discourse, and maybe South African Twitter is not a, uh, a great yardstick to measure that, is certainly not a critique of the state. I mean, discourse, popular discourse is often about men. You know, men are the problem. Like if we just had to, if we could just get, get rid of or reform this problem of South African men, we would be fine. And no, I just, I think that's actually a very impoverished, um, I mean, it, I certainly understand the affect. I understand why, where it's coming from. But is it strategic? No, it's not. The critique should be the ANC state, not men. Do, do you see what I mean? And I think that really actually uh, shifts our orientation of what the problem, where the problem lies and who is to be made accountable, right? And it's also interesting to me why it is easier to reach for men as this kind of very general loose category and not the state. So partner with the state, of course, but have a critique of the state. So you you can constantly be holding it, holding it to account. But it's also interesting to me and as an academic, and when I have a moment, I will do a more thorough uh, literature search or ask my colleagues who've been, you know, doing this uh, in a much more grounded way for a longer time. I, my, again, my strong sense is that there isn't much recent work around uh you know, women's movements in the state. I mean, there was there was a whole generation who did a lot of that work. But I don't think, I think the more recent work is actually thinking of 
you know, patriarchy in terms of yeah, women and men as quite fixed categories, or or thinking of rape, femicide. I mean, in various ways, obviously, and then all of that is very productive. But yeah, I'd be just curious and interested to do a quick search of what what is, what are the feminist takes on the state, right? And what's what's being written about more recently? Yeah, I think a lot of that has focused on the failure of the gender machinery rather than the state as a whole and the lack of the, the sort of uptake of these principles of equality and safety in a meaningful way outside of, you know, a securicatic approach or outside of legislation. So I would be very interested. I'm sure many people listening would be very interested too. And I wonder if you've received any feedback on your piece on sexual harassment in institutions from fellow feminists in the academy and what that's been. Well, as you know, Jen, when it was first published in the Mail and Guardian, yes, I mean, I received a lot of, I suppose, kind of uh, knowing responses. I think people felt that the experience was a lot more um, universal. You know, those of those who had been uh, part of these kind of institutional mechanisms or even uh, part of universities, uh, I think. So, uh, so yeah, it, it and, and that's also, I think, really important because there is a way in which you know, we in South Africa tend to, and, and again, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, if you're constantly branded with being the rape capital of the world, you tend to exceptionalize it uh, yourself. Um, and and in a way, as the piece was read by different audiences elsewhere, it suggested how much it's, it, it's not the case that any of this is unique to any particular locale or context. It's unique to a lot of, a lot of institutions differently placed. And maybe what you know what brings the co- common point with all those institutions is working with this within this you know what we call this kind of neoliberal uh, the neo- neoliberal university machinery as it were which is which is very much embedded uh, often in a, in a kind of performance culture you know of trying to so again and and recall that I start by saying this right like again we're not in a time when any university would ignore sexual harassment they would totally own it but then the question is what they do with that, right? What do they do with with that knowledge and with that acceptance? And, you know, how is it that then they'll have these robust kind of mechanisms, infrastructure, resources, uh, campaigns, hashtags, you know, the whole shebang. And, and even so, you still have a systemic problem at hand. And yeah, so I think the response to the piece suggested that you know, this is a this is a very universal problem, and again, it's it. There are no quick and uh, easy uh, resolutions at hand. I'd like to talk a bit about the governing intimacies project that you are part of. So, for listeners who are not familiar with it and haven't seen the fabulous um, seminars that you're hosting, can you tell me a little bit about that project and what its aims are? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd be uh, very happy to. So the project is, um, it's a research project, which is uh, hosted at Wits uh, University, and it's funded by the Andrew Mellon Foundation, which is uh, located in the US. The project actually uh, began by my colleague Shireen Haseen, uh, and I was a part of the project. But then in the second year, Shireen uh, left Wits uh, to move to Canada, where she's a research professor. And then I became what's called the principal investigator of the project. And the project is, I mean, to put it very simply, it's really about building uh, academic scholarship around gender and sexuality, uh, 
but in a in in a comparative vein through uh, putting India in conversation with Southern Africa. So the so to that extent, the project is what we call multi-sited. Um, it's obviously hosted at Wits, but we have a partner in Delhi, uh, which is the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality at Ashoka University and at uh, Makarere University. And what the project has done is it's funded, I mean, a major part of it is to fund postgraduate work. So it's funded masters and PhDs. Uh, Nehama Brody, who you uh, might know and has been curating the webinar series with me, was actually our first uh, completed PhD from the project. So the project funded her PhD. And it also funds uh, staff research. So, um, you know, we have as part of Governing Intimacies, there's a whole range of sub-themes that the project is intellectually interested in uh, to do with care, to do with violence, um, to do with yeah, I mean, there are just a few of them and basically staff who are interested or whose work speaks to those themes or who would like to explore those themes can kind of um, apply for, for some research support. And that support could be in the form of, you know, a fieldwork grant or it could be money to cover a little event or, or it could be um, to take some time off teaching uh, to actually do some research and writing because obviously as academics i mean that's that's our kind of most prized possession right getting you know buying time because you know, you you never have enough time to to actually write in terms of you know given your other responsibilities around teaching and service so that's that's effectively um what the project does it 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 almost supports all these little mini projects and those are of course in these three um areas right which is um, Makarere, uh, Wits, and and Ashoka, and 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 obviously the idea is to facilitate conversations and exchanges uh, between uh, amongst the researchers and students who are doing, who are effectively researching the same or are interested, I suppose, in the same ideas and the themes, but located quite differently. For people who haven't listened in, you can access the Governing Intimacies website um, and on their YouTube channel, you could go back and watch seminars that have already happened. And I wonder what you would say, Srila, to people who think that feminism is becoming too academic and inaccessible to the ordinary person. Do you think that it is a partnership between academics and activists or do you think that's a false dichotomy? Yeah, I would agree that's a false dichotomy. <laughs> Go back to your, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I suppose I'm also curious about what the term or what does the category activist gesture to. I mean, earlier, you know, in our conversation, you've talked about, uh, you know, getting donors and uh, and resourcing activists. So, you know, the idea that the kind of stereotype of the activist would not be someone who's being paid a salary right, or by an NGO, for instance. So if that's that's what we're pitting against an academic, then I'm a bit like, I don't quite understand that. Because, you know, if, if actually your paid job is to, um, is, to, is to do gender justice, then that's kind of my paid job too. It's just that our tools are really different. But I mean, that, that, leaving that aside, and, and we can come back to that, I actually don't think there's, you know, that I mean, sure, academic, uh, of course, academic language can be alienating, but I think we're in this very exciting time where there is an abundance of uh, 
literature around feminism. And your book, I mean, all of your books are, I think, really testament to that, how you have various different voices. I mean, in fact, uh, you know, in the North, there's an established genre of basically, you know, authors who are writing serious nonfiction, and often that's, you know, a feminist theme, but they're not academics. And they're writing in language that is accessible to a whole host of different audiences and publics, right? So I, I think we're we're really at the in this moment where feminism is by no means, uh, you know, just the, the property of academics who deliberate on feminism, not at all. And that's part of how, you know, feminist language has been mainstream. That's partly why, you know, we all talk about the patriarchy and so on and so forth, because, you know, this, I, I mean, this object that we call feminism is now being talked about by a lot more, a lot more people than if if ever it was just talked about by academics. I mean, I think that's one thing to remember about, uh, you know, the relationship between academia and, and 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 activism. So I suppose to go back to that is that feminist knowledge has been produced in social movements. You know, I mean, what we think of, what we call like black feminism, for instance. Or if you just take intersectionality, I mean, one of these buzzwords, a lot of that came out of, you know, looking at civil rights struggles or women's liberation and so on and so forth. So none of these are, you know, even if they might be thought of as academic concepts, the fact is that that a lot of these arose out of movements and then have gone back to movements, if if that makes sense. So I think this this divide between, you know, academics, activists, whatever you want to call it is, is false, but even if we take that at face value, it's also very, it's also very porous, and there's a lot more circulation of uh, terms and concepts amongst a lot more publics. I mean, and of course, social media has also played a huge part in that, right? Yeah, I fully agree with. I think often the that distinction is made because it's often academia coins a term that describes something that's already coming out of social movements, you know, or you know, you see hashtag feminism on social media that identifies a particular thing that has actually been well researched and I suppose my question was you know it was deliberately um, provocative because I think what I'm interested in is the intersections of those two two forms of knowledge and and modes of production and I think you've rightly identified that often the language has been a bit alienating, but that there is more of an effort now by multiple different groups of people to make that language accessible, to make the concepts accessible. And I, I'm glad that you think that's what the two books have done, because that is what I'd hoped to do was just keep, you know, keep the conversation going rather than leave it um, to different groups to have different types of conversations. Um, so I'm glad that you found that. I've seen on um, some of your bios that you've been described as a transnational feminist. Can you tell me if you agree with that that labeling of yourself and what that means for you in your life and your work? It, it inflects my my academic uh, research, but I think for myself, my primary identity is is of being a migrant because I left I left India when I was twenty to go to the UK where I studied. Uh, and I did my PhD, and then I got a job, and and then I moved here, and so this is sort of the third country I've lived in, and I think that that experience of mobility. I mean, I should also go back and say that when when I was in India itself, uh, I moved around a lot. I lived in uh, four in four very four major uh, cities in the country, and it's interesting. I don't think often think of that as 
a process of migration because you're moving in the country. But of course, that was. So in effect, I moved around a lot. And 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 I think it's really, I mean, once you take that seriously, you think how much that's kind of informed your life, uh, but also your thinking about things, right? That you actually really don't have, I mean, I am very attached, obviously, to India. And I think of it as my, it's kind of my default um, frame of reference politically um, and in various other ways. But but it's true that I haven't lived there for 20 years. And, and, and therefore, what does, you know, what does this kind of mobility or this forms of migration and travel do to one's thinking and one's understanding of oneself and one's sense of, yeah, struggles around uh, gender or sexuality and, and yeah, and, and, and how to make sense of that. It's, it was interesting what you said earlier about um, South Africa often thinking that it's the exception. And I suppose as someone who's moved around a lot, it's a bit easier to gain a bit of depth perception and perspective on the fact that these are, as you say, challenges that are experienced in many countries around the world. Um, and the thinking of ourselves in South Africa as exceptional or as exceptionalist is not really constructive to addressing the problems or learning from ways that other places have addressed problems of, for example, patriarchy and gender-based violence. You've written a lot about the Indians, Indian women's movement. Um, and as I said in the introduction, you're writing a book about feminist and queer politics in India and South Africa. Can you tell us a bit about what you've learned so far from these comparisons and maybe what the most exciting thing to come out of that comparison has been? Well, I mean, just to clarify the the book that I've just actually finished a full draft of after hundred years. <laughs> the book itself is is not comparative. It's it's just about uh, India, and and like I said, it was really interested in you know how this moment of globalization transformed what I call the you know the terrain of feminist organizing, and and yeah, like I suggested to you before, one of the ways was the coming of NGOs. Uh, but also like LGBT groups. So I actually juxtapose in the book uh, um, what began as a small support group for mainly uh, lesbian and bisexual women, and then over a decade became like a very major sexual rights NGO. Uh, So so I juxtapose that with uh, an organization that works around uh, women's uh, economic empowerment through microfinance. So those are my two kind of case studies, if you want. And through those, I try and think about you know this these these broader shifts and changes but the project i'm i'm really uh, excited about i mean i am excited about my book even though i'm tired of it <laughs> but the project i'm i suppose is is energizing me at the moment is is this collection of essays that i'm curating with uh, my colleague nikki falkoff who's at bits and another colleague uh, called shilpa patke who's in at tis in mumbai and that's around me too and that basically started with a, a, a workshop. I mean, it was kind of like a mini conference that Governing Intimacies organized. Uh, it's been two years now at Atvets. So it was kind of the first thing I did when you know I I took over the project from uh, Shireen, and and that was an incredible experience actually because we had you know a whole bunch of um, scholars uh, from India who came to Vets, and then we had a whole bunch of scholars, uh, um, academics, and some students as well from you know, all over South Africa from obviously from Wits, but also, you know, Amanda House came from Stellenbosch and Desiree Lewis and various other people. And, uh, and for two days, um, yeah, I mean, we, we used Me Too as, as a kind of uh, springboard to have a broader conversation around GPV, if, if you want. And, and actually, 
um, it ended with a, a kind of open discussion, which was really around sexual harassment at universities and comparing what universities do, have done. And it was just really uh, incredibly, you know, I mean, of course, it was interesting, I suppose, academically, as we always say that, but it, it just, just, it was so striking how comparable our situations were. It was so striking how our conversations converged and our experiences, uh, you know, as not just as scholars, but also as teachers and also as, you know, individuals who had been invested in uh, doing, in, in kind of changing universities or, or, or getting universities to take uh, gender seriously or to take, as I said right at the start, the culture of sexual harassment seriously. So anyway, I mean, to cut a long story short, emerging out of that conference, we're now doing this book. And, um, and yeah, I'm really, I mean, I'm excited about it for a number of reasons, not least that and, 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 you know, to an audience outside of academia, this might sound totally banal, but that all of our our contributors are located in South Africa and in India. And I say this because, and I was saying this at a webinar yesterday, actually, which was curated by some colleagues at Oxford, that before I think, you know, fees must fall and the whole decolonial move really happened, you know, we would have conversations at WITS, which you know, could have been about India or could have been about Brazil, but the expert voices were always from the North, you know, they were always from the UK and the US. So it's been, it's really rare to have what actually I do think governing intimacies has, has really been successful uh, in doing, like curating these, you know, South-South perspectives, these South-South collaborations and conversations. And, and that really does inflect um, the, the kind of, the research that's produced and that's hopefully what we'll we'll see in the book you know the fact that like i said you know we have these very comparable circumstances and histories but of course we also have a you know sharp uh, dissonances and the main one is that me too really traveled to india and exploded there but it didn't really you know didn't really have much traction here so that in itself is an interesting question right like why is it that you know uh Indian feminist activists or whatever you want to call them really I mean especially on social media you know me to really took on a life of its own but it didn't happen here so I think again like bringing these these two contexts in 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 you know in close relationship to one another brings all of this forward in a way that we don't often get in the academy because especially in the global south because we're still so much oriented towards the north I mean, it's really, it's striking me what you're saying that these various global movements don't seem to have impact here and, or they're not taken up in the same way. And I'm really struck by the fact that it may be linked to the fact that so much of our civil society is service-based rather than advocacy-based. And this is just a thought that I'm having off the top of my head, so it might actually be nonsense. But it really strikes me that many, when I think of feminist organizations, they are service providers to either survivors of violence or as legal clinics or people who are doing day-to-day office-based work instead of the grassroots sort of organizing that we don't hear a lot about. Um, I'm really, really excited to read your collection when it's finished. Do you have any idea when the sort of planned release date would be? Oh, that's a big question. But we are, <laughs> we do have a deadline for we definitely have a deadline for handing in the book. So hopefully, you know, if we meet the deadline, which is the end of this year, then we're probably looking at you know the middle of next year. Fantastic.
So on the topic of books, um, I have three final questions that I'm asking everybody on the podcast. Uh, the first is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism? Oh, yeah. I Gosh, I don't know. I'd be really curious to see how other academics respond to this because it just feels so difficult to pinpoint anyone because I can just immediately think of several. I mean, I, I, I suppose all I would say is instead of like one book, I would say that, you know, I really... Uh, been inspired by and maybe to go back to the transnational uh, point of you know feminist feminist voices in our context right in what was once called the third world so whether latin america or africa or asia and and for me those voices has have always been intersectional and and i think that's it's a it's a good way that you put it jen it's it's kind of like no one thought of it as being intersectional but it always was, right? And so, yeah, I suppose just to really not answer your question, but to say it's it's really been, and, and not just, and these are by no means just academics like poets or writers, fiction, but all of it has been from, yeah, the, the former third world. Nice. For peace, direct people to a section of the library, at least that's helpful. <laughs> um, so the second to last question is, do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? Not really, but I'll give you a quote that I always tell my students, which is that is the bell hooks title of her book, which is Feminism is for Everybody. And mm. and I really bang on about it because I really think there's this generational moment where, again, for very obvious reasons, you know, uh, young women in particular feel that, you know, feminism has got nothing to do with men. And, mm. and, and it's interesting to me how these conversations always recur, right? Like, how can men be feminists and of course not and i'm i'm really of that generation where i don't believe feminism has got anything to do with being a man or a woman mm. I, I believe it's it's a struggle for 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 really a, a a utopic world which is better for everyone right it's better for mm. women it's better for girls it's better for men it's better for boys it's better for non-binary trans queer people it's better for everybody and that's that's why people you should be a feminist you should own it mm-hmm. not because you're an ally and i hate that word of that <laughs> because you're a comrade and this is the struggle for mm-hmm. for justice and we should all be part of that struggle so yeah so the slogan i really go by is feminism is for everybody i think many people will agree um, and my final question to you is do you have any advice that you would give to other feminists on their journeys Gosh, no, I think that's, I mean, that's actually maybe a problem that feminists have had of being quite like pedantic or moralizing. So, uh, so no, I don't, I have any advice except to, to perhaps say that, you know, all of it matters, right? Like to never think that, you know, what you're doing is, 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 is not the real revolution and that's happening elsewhere. I think, I think really to embrace, again, I mean, if we're talking about slogans that one goes by, that the personal is the political. So, and to never forget that, you know, patriarchy doesn't happen to you. Patriarchy happens to to everyone. Mm. And, and the struggles are small and the struggles are large and the struggles are of being, you know, your, yeah, of, uh, I mean, the struggle is for your humanity, ultimately. So, yeah, to not be little any struggle because that is a way of belittling oneself i think for someone who said they didn't have any advice that was very good advice <laughs> thank you so much Srila, for coming on today for talking to me for the work that you do i think we're all going to benefit from it so thank you very much 
Well, thanks for having me, Jen. You can follow Srila on Twitter at Prof Srila Roy, and you can find out more about the Governing Intimacies project at governingintimacies.wordpress.com. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.